The resurgence of the Taliban has thrown Afghanistan into chaos and has put thousands of lives in danger as those who helped Canada and its military allies fear for their safety. But after Canada stopped its evacuation flights last week, many are wondering what can be done to help those left behind. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Toronto Sun reporter Brian Passifume walks us through the chaos people faced trying to get out of Afghanistan, the potential political fallout for the Liberals over their handling of this mess, and whether there's more Canada can do other than wait. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you can leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Brian, like many around the world, I've been watching over the last couple of weeks anyway, but for a little bit longer as the situation on the ground in Afghanistan has taken a sad turn. Wondering if you can just spell out for listeners, when did things start to get bad in Afghanistan? Was it, you know, six months ago? Was it more recently than that? Spell that out for us. Oh God, how, how, how far back in history do you want to go? We're talking decades, <laughs> centuries. It's yeah, it, it's probably one of the most uh, besieged countries in the, in the history of the history of the world. Really, it, I can't recall a time where in uh, you know, the past hundred years of this was sort of like a political piece there. But you know, it, it all hinges on the, um, the war against terror. You know, uh, after the after September 11th. Um, the U.S. and the Allies uh, made their stand against uh, bin Laden and, uh, and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And the U.S. troops have been there ever since. Um, fast forward to recent history, you know, there was uh, this negotiation between former President Trump and the Afghanistan government as to when they would uh, pull out the remainder of their troops. Uh, the original um, deadline everybody thought was September 11th, 2021, mm-hmm. uh, which is the one that everybody had vested in. And, and that prompted a lot of people, including uh, Canadian citizens that I've been speaking to, uh, to decide that, uh, you know, now may, now's maybe the time to, you know, go over there and finish up a few um, loose ends before, um, you know, because I think everybody was expecting the Taliban to come back. I think that everybody was really wary about how long that would take. I don't think anybody thought it would take as long as as quick as it did. Yeah, so September 11th was the target date. And then in July, the U.S. Uh, suddenly decided to abandon their base in Bagram. Mm-hmm. And everything just kind of went from there. I remember reading reports at the time that everybody was was surprised. Even the, the Afghan military commanders kind of, you know, went in to work that morning and uh, all the offices were empty kind of thing. I know that's a generalization, but that's, uh, that's, that's kind of how people saw this. I've been speaking to a lot of people over there. Canadian citizens and permanent residents who who went over the summer t- for various reasons. One couple I spoke to was a married couple, Canadian citizens for 40 years, currently living in Toronto. He is very ill with cancer, and uh, I guess he wanted to uh, go over and sell some property and I guess uh, you know wrap up his his business there before the end. So they went over in June. There was another uh, person I talked to, a gentleman from Ottawa, a business owner who. Likewise, went over in June for personal reasons. His uh, mother and teenage sister were granted visas to come to Canada. So he went over to, uh, you know, help them pack up their life and come back to Canada with them. Mm-hmm. And when the U.S. pulled out in July, that kind of made everybody go, oh, okay, maybe we should uh, keep an eye on the situation. The Ottawa businessman I spoke to rebooked his flights. Unfortunately, the, uh, you know, there's not a lot of international traffic coming in and out of, uh, Kebbell's airport even before the, uh, Taliban took over. And the earliest he was able to get his flights rescheduled for us for August 20th. Wow. And as you know, that was uh, a few days before Kabul fell. 
So I'm, I'm sure there's, a, there's countless other Canadian citizens. The government won't give us a number on how many Canadian citizens and permanent residents are stranded over there, but you know, there's, there's quite a few and a lot of them have stories like that. Yeah. And really it's the stories coming out of there that are really, you know, for me, the, the really, the, the, the most pointless, uh, cr- uh, a pointy chronicle of, of what's going on there. The U.S. drawdown in Afghanistan has coincided with the resurgence of the Taliban to the point where they started overrunning the country, right? And there and there was concern that even a few months ago that something needed to be done to ensure that people could get out of the country safely. When did we start hearing those concerns about whether Americans would be able to get out, whether we'd be able to get out our Canadian citizens or permanent residents and people who helped Canada during our military engagement in Afghanistan? Nobody expected the Taliban to move this quickly. People who've lived in, in Kabul for years never expected. They knew it was inevitable, but they never imagined that it would be this quick. The Taliban offensive uh, began you know, shortly after the U.S. Uh, pulled out. It was, uh, I think, July 12th. The Taliban seized like, like well, almost almost 150 districts for the Afghan National Army. You know, and, and a lot of people question why they folded so quick. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. The military was, was underpaid, underequipped. You know, how loyal would you be to a military that maybe paid you, you know, every so often kind of thing. So yeah. there was a lot of issues on the ground as to why they folded quickly. You know, certainly wasn't for a lack of equipment as, uh, as uh, the pictures of uh, Taliban fighters uh, flying around in Blackhawks and sporting brand new American M4 rifles that, uh, you know, they definitely took advantage of the, the caches of uh, weapons and equipment left behind by the Americans for the Afghan army. But yeah, it, it happened so quick. You know, I remember when uh, when, when the Taliban took Mazari Sharif, which is uh, a stronghold in the north, and and they they just went from there. It was just kind of like a beeline step, you know, straight south to uh, to Kabul. That's when really people really started panic. We're talking about the people who we're starting to get fearful about. Obviously, there are Canadians in Afghanistan, permanent residents, as you say, who had gone back over there to kind of settle some things in their lives or citizens who had been there visiting family. But we're also talking about a pretty large swath of allies in the country. And these are people who there's been talk about for years about what do we do with the people who helped us out? How many people are we talking about conservatively and what roles did they play in our time militarily in Afghanistan? When you include families, we're talking thousands of people. And, the, and these are people that quite literally put their, their lives on the line to help us. They served as translators, interpreters, embassy security staff, embassy workers, clerks, cooks, fixers, drivers, right, right from the top down. We're like, we're talking like thousands of people that, that not only helped us, but also helped, you know, the US, the UK and the other allies, you know, do what they needed to do. They, Interpreters are probably the most visible and the most fundamental, especially for for the, the soldiers who, who who served over there. Mm-hmm. Like like a lot of the Canadian Forces members I've spoken to, you know, they, they have they have such an affection for their interpreters. And one of them I interviewed last week for a story I wrote said, you know, they're our brothers, and we left them behind. You know, they they don't see any difference between their brothers in arms in the military and the the interpreters that uh, that served alongside them that wore our uniform and wore our flag. And getting these people out, is, it's not a new thing. It's something that, uh, you know, my colleague Joe Warmington at the Toronto Sun has been, for years, has been covering this thing. I think he's probably been covering the story longer than any other Canadian journalist. To me and to him and to a lot of other Canadian Forces members, it, it, it really is kind of disgraceful that now is the time that we're deciding to get them out and not uh, 
you know, over the years. It really is a sad situation that we're treating them like this. And as the situation was heating up in Afghanistan, did we get a sense that there was any plan to get the interpreters and their families, these allies out, as well as, you know, our own people, our Canadian citizens? Was there a concrete roadmap for how we get these people out? And were they getting the answers they needed from the Canadian government? As a layman observer, as, as, as most journalists are, you know, we can, we, we can draw inferences and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, in talking to people on the ground and talking to Canadian forces members, it really is clear that there wasn't really a plan. The extent of the Canadian plan was to fly C-17s and C-130s into Kabul's airport and then just wait for people to show up. And I, I think the other allies quickly looked at the situation on the ground and said that wasn't really a, a reasonable uh, expectation, particularly when you're, you're talking about people that may or may, or may not be uh, mobile or able to, to fight through these crowds. Other countries were, were bringing in, you know, other material to bring people out. I remember Germany uh, was, was tweeting photos of helicopters being loaded into cargo aircraft and flying them in there. One of my contacts on the ground told me that the German uh, evacuees were being taken out, uh, you know, f- from the city into the airport with buses with German license plates. So obviously they just rolled off the streets of Germany onto a plane and then rolled into Kabul and, and moved them out. Other countries, the US, the UK, Belgium, Spain, the Ukraine were running armed patrols into the city to get their people out. Whereas Canada's strategy was just to accept whoever happened to show up at the gate. But unfortunately, there was a lot of issues that really interfered with that. First of all, just the immense crush of people around the north gate of Kabul's airport, which is the staging area that people were using to, you know, to bypass the other Taliban controlled checkpoints. Mm-hmm. I spoke to Canadian citizens and people who held valid visas to get out that were turned away by the American soldiers. Global Affairs Canada was instructing their evacuees to wear the color red and to identify themselves as Canadians, you know, which A, is a bit of an asinine strategy. And B, <laughs> yeah. you could really tell the Global Affairs was hinged on that plan because myself and other journalists who reported that, we got very nasty emails from Global Affairs Canada demanding we take our stories down and saying that it violated security protocols by writing it. First of all, A, it was, you know, it, it was quite well known by the time we reported it. And B, is, is that really what you're marrying your strategy to is to, you know, pass out root sweatshirts and hope that uh, it gets people there? Because people I'm t- I was talking to, like, within hours of, of Global Affairs Canada telling its people to wear red, suddenly everybody at the checkpoints wearing red. You've got like 100,000 people and most of them are wearing red. Very, very few of them are Canadian evacuees. It's like, that's your strategy? Yeah. And then the um, early last week, evacuees were told to go to uh, the Baron Hotel, which is a compound next to the airport, present yourself to uh, the gate, say that you're Canadian and a Canadian consular official will meet you. I spoke to a few people who went there and, uh, you know, they were turned away by the American soldiers guarding the gate. They couldn't get anywhere near the hotel. Canadian consular officials never showed up. And the ones that arrived later ended up walking into a Taliban trap. You know, the Taliban had gotten wind of the, uh, the instructions for Canadians to go to the Baron Hotel. And, uh, you know, f- more than a few people I spoke to ended up uh, getting beat up by Taliban soldiers. So wow. it really disillusioned not only myself and observers here, but also people over there who really thought that, uh, that that Canada would take care of its people. Watching it from such a distance and following your stories and your social media and others in the Canadian media who are covering this, I was really struck by a couple of things. The images of people like crowding around these airplanes and clinging onto the outside of the airplanes, trying to get out. And also the frustration I was seeing in text messages and emails 
that you and others were, were posting about, you know, I'm trying to get there and I get there and I'm told I can't get in. And what do you make of just this kind of desperation that people were feeling to get out of the country and how difficult it was made by the bureaucracy surrounding the whole operation? That was the hardest part of this. You're a journalist, you put yourself out there, you, your, your name is out there and your DMs are open. And uh, right for my first story, there was like my Twitter inbox was filled with people just desperate to get out. Like not only just Canadians and, and, and Canadian evacuees and interpreters and embassy staff, but just regular Kabul citizens who saw my coverage and uh, were begging me to get out. And even now, like, like I almost dread opening up my, uh, my, my DMs because it's uh, just filled with people that you can't help them. Like you can't help them. And like, I, like I tell them, I said, look, there's Canadian citizens who are stuck in Kabul and nothing's being done to help them. Like, like you don't want to kill their hope, but mm-hmm. you know, like you just got to tell them, like, just go to whatever embassy is still open in Kabul and claim refugee status, get out of the country try to get to Pakistan and, uh, and, and apply for refugee status. Cause that's the only advice you can give them. Like, you know, like even if I had the ability to send everybody money for a plane ticket, there's no plans out. Yeah. Any other way out of the country is, is perilous. I'm speaking to embassy staff right now who were, uh, they had valid visas. They had the paperwork from global affairs to get out, but they couldn't get past the gate. They couldn't get past the, the Afghan soldiers and the American soldiers at the gate who just wouldn't let them onto their flights. And, they're escaping the country. You know, the the only border that's still open between Afghanistan and Pakistan right now is, is south of Kandahar. And, you know, a whole bunch of people I talked to made the trek to Kandahar. And, uh, yeah, like there's people at, there's Taliban at the gates who are looking at papers and, and trying to identify people who help the allies. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a death sentence. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. That was one thing that really struck me about some of the coverage is just the fear that people are feeling. The the idea that for those who helped the allies in Afghanistan, that if they're identified by the Taliban, they're very it very likely is a death sentence. What's the concern for Canadian citizens who, you know, they, they didn't help the allies, but they're Afghans who've lived in Canada and they go back there? Like, is there a fear that they'll never get to leave again? Is there a possibility that these people will be stuck? long-term in a country that's been overtaken by fundamentalists. The Taliban have promised that any foreign nationals would be allowed to leave there. It sounds like their main concern is keeping Afghan nationals in place. They don't want them to leave, Mm -hmm. but that all means nothing. If there's, you know, the airport's closed and there's no way to get out of there. You know, I heard there was some, some early rumors that uh, the Taliban were going to be asking uh, Turkey to come in to take over operating the airport this really is a tragedy of access. You know, like all the Canadians there, they have Canadian passports. They, they're, they're free to leave. They're able to leave. They have permission to leave. It's just, there's no way to leave. The elderly couple from Toronto, they, they tried several times to leave. You know, they're, they follow the advice of global affairs to go to the North gate, wear red and tell your Canadian, say you're Canadian. They couldn't get anywhere near the uh, airport because as I mentioned, they're quite old and firm and uh, the gentleman's got brittle bones. If he ended up falling, it would have been the end of him. Mm-hmm. You know, they made every effort to get out. They spent a lot of money on long taxi rides, going through Taliban checkpoints and, and almost killing themselves with exhaustion to get out. They couldn't, you know, like, like these people have full permission to get out. It's just, that means nothing when uh, you're physically not able to. Canada originally had the deadline for the last flight out of Kabul airport as August 31st, but they kind of surprised people when, they said last week that, okay, our last flight is today. Do we get a sense of when they hope to get more Canadians out? Don't know. No clue. 
<laughs> I think I think it really it's it's it hinges on when they can reopen the airport. It hinges on when they're able to actually get flights there. Yeah, and how exactly are they going to are they going to get out? Because the Canadian government has been chartering um, various airlines to transport people from either Kuwait or Cologne, Germany to Canada. Ethiopian Airlines has been uh, chartered. There's been a few wet lease airlines that have flown people. Really, it's just going to be whenever they can reopen the airport, whenever they can find a plane willing to land there. And uh, that that's pretty much where it hinges on right now. It's, it's just the logistics of, of reopening the airport, getting people out. I don't see the Canadian government running any like a sort of a Black Hawk special forces, uh, you know, uh, raid into the country to get people out. Because uh, mm-hmm. if uh, they weren't willing to run buses in, into the city, I don't see that happening. So we're, we're pretty much at the mercy of when the, the Taliban decide to reopen the airport. As this is all happening, we all remember that on the day that the federal election campaign kicked off was the day that things took an awful turn in Afghanistan. This has become an election issue for the prime minister. We've seen both opposition party leaders, Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole, talk about how they would have done things differently, that they would have been successful. What has the prime minister had to say in relation to how the government has performed in getting people out? If I may, it really was an odd strategy for Trudeau to the, the way he took with this. Common sense would have said that uh, he would jump on this as, as an election thing, you know, just say, you know, no stone be left unturned. We'll try our hardest to give you, get people out. He could have easily been a, turned this into him being the hero. But instead, his press conferences were, well, you know, don't, you know, temper your expectations. There's a good chance not everybody's going to get out. At the same time, painting their operation as, as a success. And, you know, uh, Minister Mendocino saying that, uh, you know, miracles are happening. Well, people I talk to on the ground, like, you know, they, they feel left behind. And we're not just talking like like our allies and, and, and people that have been promising to get up for a long time. We're taking Canadian citizens. They're watching this going on saying, well, you know, Mr. Miracle Maker, we're still stuck here. You know, we're Canadian citizens, we hold Canadian passports, and we're, we're, we're still stuck here. So it, it really is a, an extremely odd situation. And uh, I wrote a story about a week and a half ago about a very disgruntled Canadian Forces uh, officer who uh, contacted me and uh, asked me to uh, keep him anonymous. But, um, you know, he provided some uh, incredibly compelling uh, evidence that there's a Special Forces, you know, extraction team in Kuwait, like ready to go the Friday before the election was called. But they never got the go-ahead from either global affairs or the prime minister's office. And this mm-hmm. is like right at the top of military leadership that says, "Hey, we got someone ready to go. We're you know we're ready to go, ready to go, ready to go." But um, it it just seems that the all the bandwidth in Ottawa was taking up with this election call, and uh, that that kind of fell by the wayside. And that was three or four days that we could have been in there longer to get people out. That uh, you know at least according to the military commanders I spoke to, just uh, you know the order never came. I mean, ultimately. Canada did get, I believe it was around 3,700 people out of Afghanistan. I know that they've left thousands more behind. We're at a point now where politicians can say, well, I would have done this differently, or I would have had a plan, or I would have gone in sooner. And the prime minister can talk positively. If the, I mean, I call him the prime minister. Cabinet is still cabinet. We're in the middle of an election. So we had the liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, mm-hmm. can talk about everything that was done in a try and spin that in a positive light. But ultimately now it's kind of like, well, what do we do now? Is it just a waiting game? Is there any hope that there is the possibility for diplomacy with the Taliban? And I know that's an odd statement to say, considering that we fought against this group and they're deemed a terrorist group in Canada, but is there any hope that 
we can save more lives here? And that's the thing. A lot of people are criticizing Mark Arnold mentioned, you know, possibilities of negotiations with the Taliban, and he was criticized for that. But despite whatever lists we put them on, they're still the de facto government of Afghanistan. They're still in charge. They hold the lives of everybody in uh, in the country and Canadian citizens at their mercy. Mm-hmm. It seems that with the uh, Afghanistan branch of ISIS battling them as well, it, it may quickly turn into a, a horrible, horrible civil war there. Just the, these two despotic regimes struggling for control and our people and and afghanis uh, you know innocent afghans are going to be caught in the middle and this may complicate security matters if uh, you know the taliban are too tied up with uh, fending off isis terror attacks and uh, you know things like opening the airport and granting safe passage to our citizens may very well fall by the wayside it is a waiting game right now it's uh, and I, I think it, we're not going to see any any traction until after the election's over um you know it's uh for all the good intentions minister sajan and mendocino are you know trying to get reelected, and it's not a partisan comment this is just common sense that that is going to be their priority and that's going to be uh you know where most of their efforts are going to be taken up and whoever ends up forming the government on the 20th i really hope that their first order of business is, is sorting out the situation in afghanistan and kabul and i if I have any message, and this is what I've told people I'm in contact with, you know, hold tight into the 20th and we'll see what happens after that. Well, it is definitely a grim story that has been unfolding for weeks and we'll see what comes next. Brian, thanks for your time. Anytime. Thanks. 103 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Brian Passifume. More from him at torontosun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>